And we're back for another episode of Startup Hustle, a podcast for entrepreneurs by entrepreneurs. If you want to start, own, or build a business, then you're in the right place. We bring you the real truth about what it's like to take something from concept to launch, from growth, innovation, experience, failing, or winning big, we've got you covered. So let's get down to business with another episode of Startup Hustle, brought to you by Fullscale.io. And we're back, back for another episode of Startup Hustle. Matt DeCourcy here to have another conversation that I'm hoping helps your business grow. We've talked so much about how to raise money, how to different types of investments, how to prepare a pitch deck, how to look for investors, but we haven't really talked enough about how to invest in startups. And that's exactly what I'm going to get into with today's guest. Now, before we get too far into that, a quick reminder that today's episode of Startup Hustle is brought to you by Fullscale.io, helping you build a software team quickly and affordably. Go to Fullscale.io and learn more about that. With me today, I have Hall Martin. Hall is the founder and CEO of the 10 Capital Network. You can go to 10capital.group. There's a link in the show notes that'll make it even easier for you to visit there. Straight out of Austin, Texas, Hall, welcome to Startup Hustle. Well, thanks for having me. Looking forward to it. Yeah, and I'm looking forward to this topic. I know this is going to be a popular one. So, very interested to learn more about what you guys do at, at 10 Capital and also what your advice is for investing in startups. Now, that said, I just want to give a quick disclaimer. We're, I'm not an investment advisor, so any advice that you get from today's show, you're doing on your own, people. So, you know, you can take it for what it is, but please uh, just know that this is two guys having a conversation about how to invest in startups, and we're going to let you listen in. So with that, I think it's probably a good place to start, Hall, with a little bit of background about your backstory and 10 Capital. Great. So I work for a large company here in Austin that went public in 1995 and started doing angel investing at that time. That time, we, we had one angel network in Austin, and they ran from 95 to 2002. And I came in, started looking at the deals, put money into one, and uh, a year later, it all went away, just went to zero. And it dawned on me that this is harder than it looks. It's not as easy as I thought it might be. And so my backstory is I started doing angel investing with some friends for a few years. And then the local city here in Austin decided to do a restart of the angel network in 2006. And so I signed up as the first member. And when you're the first member in an angel group, you're automatically on the board in charge of membership. It's a great honor. There's no pay, but it's a great honor. And so I did that for about three months and then we lost our director. So I became the director. And so I helped start up the group because I wanted to meet other investors and learn how they were investing. Investing, and we went and recruited about uh, uh, you know 50 members. Got about invested in 20 deals, and we yet later ended up with a 33x return. And so I saw the good, the bad, and the ugly that came with investing in startups, and became interested in it. And later went on to start two more angel networks, and then I started 10 Capital uh, in 2009, originally under the name Texas Entrepreneurs Network. And we were helping startups and investors connect because what I learned 
when I ran those angel networks is 90% of the people that room would pitch, go away, and we would never hear from them again. Have no idea what happened. They just disappeared on us. And they got little or no money out of it. And But about 10% of those came back, gave us updates, reminders, told us more about it. And on the fourth update, out came the checkbooks. It was like clockwork. And it started to dawn on me, well, you know, raising funding is really about building a relationship and demonstrating a growth story. Investing in funding is trying to see traction and understand the deal and also know the team. And so that's what was going on was those who came back and gave us a chance to build a relationship. They're the ones that raised the funding. You know, it doesn't surprise me that 90% of people went away. I mean, that's kind of startups and fundraising seem a little Darwinistic in that way. And, you know, it's, it's, I think it's about the, those that are tenacious and want to come back. Now you just said something that has been uh, kind of an ongoing theme and that's the investment in the team. Uh, I've been doing a very unscientific survey over about 700 episodes of this show and asking investors whether they bet on the, want to bet on the jockey or the horse. And uh, everybody chooses the jockey, which is basically the team. So um, now you list 10 Capital Group. And once again, go to that's T-E-N. My wife always makes fun of me when I'm from Kansas. So I say 10. (laughs) Um, So I'll spell that out for you, Jill. 10capitalgroup.com. There's a link in the show notes. Now, you list that as a funding as a service platform. Talk a little bit about that. So when we started our group, I I knew many investors, funds, venture capitalists, angels, and so forth. And one of the challenges I saw is that people got into a mode of raise a fund, deploy it, raise a fund, deploy it. And as long as you're getting a good return, a good return off that uh, fund, you could raise the next one. As soon as you had a bad return, you could, you started to find it challenging to raise the next fund. So I decided to approach this a little bit differently. And so I noticed that inside the world of funding, Startups are looking for investors, angel groups are looking for members, VC funds are looking for limited partners, that I would focus on that problem and get out of the fundraising cycle and get into other aspects of the uh, market that seem to be you know, not as lucrative, but much more stable and long lasting because you can go forever on, on that model. And the idea is we help startups and investors connect with funding. So we're helping startups find investors and we're using a, a recurring revenue model for that, that process. And then angel groups, they, they grow by having more members. And so we help them find members. And then VC funds are looking for limited partners. So they too are looking for investors and we're finding those as well. I Early on when I ran uh, started my company in 2009, I found that uh, you know, I you know, had, didn't want to have a broker's license because I had this large network of venture capital funds and angel groups and they didn't allow brokers to be in the deal. So I went the non-broker route and started trying to find other ways to serve without becoming a broker dealer and have been doing that ever since. So when it comes to when we talk about like just wanting to invest in startups in general, I think that a lot of people are attracted to the they hear these big returns. They hear 33x, 100x, (laughs) infinity x. And they get stars in their eyes and want to be rock stars. And, you know, I mean, and I think that's a, a pretty well-known thing because why not? I mean, if something's got this insane return, sign me up, right? But, you know, I think that what a lot of people don't realize is like you mentioned in your first couple goes at it, uh, you came up blank. 
And so with that, do you think if you want to start investing in startups that finding a local angel group is the best place to get your feet wet? I think that's really a good place to start because you can, there's a lot to learn about startup funding and it can be hard to just read the blogs and study the books and get there. It's best to work with other investors and in particular the nuances, what questions do they ask? Where do they spend their time on diligence? You, you learn a lot when you're in an angel group and you hear different perspectives and different approaches to it. And so that's why I wanted to join an angel group was to learn from others because uh, it's, it's harder than it looks. And there's a lot of nuance that goes into it. So a great way to share the deal flow and the due diligence. If you've ever invested in startups on your own, you'll know how much work it takes to go find and interview the deals, then how much more work it takes to go do diligence on them. And if you can get into a group where you can share some of that, it saves you a lot of time and it's a great way to learn. So when you mentioned the quote nuances, what, what are a couple of those things? So one of the first things you'll learn as an investor is that uh, valuation, you know, the how much ownership you get for the money you put in or the price of your money, so to speak, is is the critical factor. And I see the, you know, when, when angels were coming up in the 90s, uh, they've been around since 80s, but really they started hitting their stride in the late 90s, early 2000s, because the business models had kind of shifted a lot of the startups into the angel space. Venture capitalists came out and said, you guys don't know what you're doing. You're going to lose all your money. And certainly some, some people did. And then here today, I see crowdfunders coming up and they too are the new investors on the block. And I see them putting money into deals where the valuation is just way out of whack. It's just too, too far up there. They will never get a return for that. And so you start to learn some of the basics of what is just a, a basic good deal. And the price that you get in at is a major factor. And of course, when the stock market's very high, like it is now, prices are very high. When the stock market crashes, Prices are very low. And as we all know, it's buy low, sell high. And so you have to start thinking about valuation and when you come into it. So, so that's one, one nuance is to start considering what is the value of it. And the other, other part of that valuation is you see many startups coming in with a very high valuation because one day they will be a very big company with a lot of revenue. But what I learned is, is that uh, today's investments, today's valuation. It doesn't get tomorrow's valuation, it gets today's valuation. So what you have in the business today is what you are putting your money in on and what it may be tomorrow, who knows? And so you see that game played a lot with entrepreneurs where the, the valuation is set way high because they think one day it'll be high, but that's you don't have those values in the business. And as an investor, you're looking for what value is there and you're paying for what value is there. And that's really the discussion to have with the startup is what exactly is in the business right now. So much of what you mentioned is kind of subjective, meaning like it's it's uh, what's a fair price, whatever a buyer and seller agree upon, right? I mean, maybe this is that's actually technically just defined the market price for that transaction. So, like, what's a red flag that you might look at when it comes to valuation? Because I, I mean, I see them all over the place. Sure. So there, there is quite a bit of data out there. You just have to go do your homework to find it. If you go look at the exits of similar companies in your space, maybe you're investing in marketplaces or business, business SaaS, there are standard metrics for what the value of that business is based on revenue. SaaS today is 10x top line revenue. And it's, but it's not 15 or 20, which you sometimes see coming through. 
And so you can start to see a red flag when the deals go outside of the standard of what is comparable businesses. And you just have to go look those numbers up and know a little bit about them. And so one of the first things you want to do is pick, pick a sector that you want to learn and understand and then start researching the exits that are there. What are other businesses doing? What are they raising money on? What's the going rate, so to speak? And then you'll have a better chance of looking at how that's going to be. The other approach is to apply your, your standard angel metric. Angels want five times their money in three to five years. So one way you do that is you look at a company, maybe they've got uh, two or $300,000 of revenue, they have a $5 million valuation on it. Okay, so in five years, that $5 million is gonna be $25 million in valuation. And maybe the comps in this thing are 10x. So, you know, do I think I can get from here to there based on those numbers and try to figure out in five years, will they be able to reach that revenue target? In the case, case I just gave you, the, the answer is probably so. But if I came and said that same company wanted $20 million, they had 500K of revenue and they had a valuation of 20 million on it in five years, do I think they'll get to $100 million? Well, I'm not so sure about that. So you can start to put some math to, to the test to see if these guys are really in a realistic way to go get there and then make a decision on it. So one thing I've learned is that people don't like investing in things that they don't understand. Like there's uh, a level of familiarity, like for example, I'm a software guy myself. So that makes it easy for me to invest in a software platform. I don't know anything about food production. So I see a food production opportunity and I'm like, you know, that's just not for me. Do you recommend that people that are getting started in these groups and just, you know, investing in general, that they look for things that they understand? Well, the thing I always approach with is as an investor, I always want to be able to help the startup. I want to be able to add value to it. And when I look at a deal that I understand or I can somehow touch or enable, uh, I find that to be a much better investment than it's just a passive investment. I write a check and I, I just never see them again. So the idea is you want to help them. And to help them, you have to know something about their business. You have to be somehow related to it or in that ballpark with there. So I always like to work in that direction. So you understand a little bit about what's going on here. You don't have to understand the technology all the way down to the physics level, but you do need to understand the business model and what they're really selling is what is you want to discover in the diligence process, what's really there. And the other thing you want to look for is what I call a competitive advantage. And most people are, I've never met an entrepreneur that didn't have a competitive advantage, according to them. They would come and say, oh yeah, we, are, we have a great competitive advantage. And oftentimes it was just price. We're just going to charge cheaper than the, the competition, which is not really a competitive advantage because they can always lower their price. A true competitive advantage gives you a 30% increase in revenue or a 30% decrease in cost uh, structurally. And that's a competitive advantage. And if you can find that, that, that's a very interesting company to pursue. So we've been talking about angel groups. And once again, with me today, I've got Hall Martin, who's the founder and CEO of 10 Capital Group. There's a link in the show notes. You can click and go learn more. You guys have a great site. There's a lot of good resources on here, not only for investors, but also for companies. So thank you 
for creating. I think that anytime there's good information and advice out there, it's helpful. Now, when it comes to your group, I mean, what do you guys do to attract investors? So what we do is we offer investors deal flow at no charge. You can come in, log on to our website online. You can look at deals. We'll mail them to you if you want to sign up. And you can then click on one of three buttons, intro, pass, or follow. Intro means you want to call. Pass means you're off that list. Follow means you want to see how this one develops. And we'll take care of it from there. You don't have to log in. You don't have to sign up. You just All you have to do is click the button. And we'll put you on the right list going forward. So we reduce the friction to getting deal flow that you may find interesting. And we don't charge the investor. The companies are the ones that are uh, supporting us in this direction. And so it's easy to get access to deal flow that you may be interested in. And then we're also a, a resource or a channel. Oftentimes the investor calls me up and asks, well, what's uh, what's the campaign going? How's it going? What, what's, what, what's the company like? And what I find is that... Um, Running a fundraise campaign for the startup is very similar to, you know, you know, selling a product. You have to go out and, uh, you know, promote the product and do demos and talk to people and so forth. And it's a proxy for sales expertise. Those who can do a good fundraise campaign are probably going to be good, pretty good at sales. And we, we see that in action every day or in action in some cases, as it may be. So we were a resource to the investor in many ways. So at what point do you make the decision to connect founders to investors or is that kind of just up to them based on the actual, like you mentioned, the deal flow and that info, is that then a transparent like discussion between them or do you guys work as a filter? So when they come in, we're looking for companies that we think will be interesting to investors. And what I've learned is investors want to see a growth story in action moving forward. Sales team, product and fundraise, those core four things are moving forward. Uh, and so when companies come to me, we're looking to see, do you have a growth story? Can you get out? Because you, like I said before, you have to have four touches before you'll ever see a checkbook, if not more. And so you have to be going to them every month with new information. Do you, do you have that? If you're pre-revenue, that can be very hard. It can be done, but it's difficult. But it's better if every month you can talk about sales or team or product or fundraising uh, results because that's what's going to get the investor excited because they're looking for a sense of momentum and traction in the deal. Things are steadily progressing forward. And those people who came back, you know, that 10% that came back to the angel group room, that's what they were doing is they were showcasing how they had closed the sale. They're working on another one, hiring a new team member. They were raised money from some other sources. And so there's things going on there that uh, made it attractive to them. And then building the relationship was a little bit a part of that as well. So that's what you want to do as a startup is be able to show those things. And as an investor, that's what you're looking for. You're looking to see, is this already in motion? No fair, you need $500,000 before you can do anything. You should be able to do something now is what we're looking for. Today's episode is brought to you, of Startup Hustle is brought to you by Fullscale.io, helping you build a software team quickly and affordably. Now, with that subject, finding talent, is a challenge for all startups. That's what full scale kind of helps teams scale. Uh, you're in Austin, Texas, which is uh, for all intents and purposes, becoming Silicon Valley number two um, in many regards. Um, how how uh, important is it that uh, a startup that you want to invest in 
have the talent they need or the ability to scale? Well, it's absolutely critical because I used to ask people or startups, what's the biggest challenge? And it was raising funding. But in the last six months, it switched over to finding talent. So certainly the, the pendulum has swung over. The, the difference now, though, is you don't have to hire people in your backyard anymore. You can hire them almost anywhere. And so that's really opened up the floodgates, especially with uh, international workers. If you're in certain sectors, there's some countries in Europe that are highly specialized at it. And so it's less about hiring people and knowing more about where to find people. What are the sources of talent for specific skills or technical or otherwise to carry it forward. And you just need to have your game plan put together on how you're going to do it and know how much it's going to cost as well. They, the prices are going up around the world a little bit for lots of reasons. And you just need to make sure that you have that as part of your game plan. You know, as I mentioned, uh, Austin's gotten a lot of attention and I've spent some time there. It's a cool town, man. I, I really enjoy Austin and I, I love any town that who's, uh, slogan is keep it weird um isn't that isn't that that's i believe that's still austin's uh, uh motto or help keep austin weird or something like that now when it comes to uh ge geography for where a startup is placed i've i mean from from you know i'm in kansas city and we're you know here we are in the 25th biggest media market in the u.s we're not new york city we're not miami but one thing that is available here is, is affordable, you know, and so many companies that are set up, you get, you have the Seattle's the, the, you know, anywhere in California, I know Austin's kind of gotten, gotten crazy for its expenses. Do you think geography should be something that you take into consideration when you're investing in a startup? Uh, in some cases, yes. I think it's interesting to see that they have access to good talent. They have access to affordable housing uh, while the markets jumped up in housing, you know, Austin, Dallas, Houston are now building more houses than the entire state of California. So I think the affordability will, will stay there. If we can't build more houses, well, then we're, we're on the same path as Silicon Valley. So I think we'll, we'll, we'll maintain that affordability for sure. But, but there are, again, you know, it's back to the team, you know, more and more uh, is what the workers want. If the workers want to work remote or they want to work in a flexible way, your business has to take that into account and, and set it up and structure it in such a way because going back to the office, going back to a 95, going back to a cubicle, I don't really see that in the startup world anymore. Even, even incubators and so forth are going virtual because that's what the workers want. So I think uh, you have to take that aspect into account, but what part of the country they're in, not so much. You do, if you're going outside the US, you do have to consider time zones. I think time zones do have an impact on work working uh, relationships and so forth, because there's not as much overlap as you need in some cases to get the job done. But within the U.S., I think that that certainly is not an issue. Yeah, over the over the last year, year and a half, especially people that I've hosted here on the show have uh, expressed an interest in bargain hunting. It basically, you know, looking at all these, you know, we like to say we're in flyover country because most people just fly over where we're at and you know, they're, they're headed to one coast or the other. And there's, I mean, there, there is a, quite a bit of bargain hunting out there, but when you look at the area outside, you know, four or five major metropolitan areas, it's massive. I mean, it's massive. Like, where do you start? 
So I think that's been some of the, the confusion with that. Now, you know, part of what we talked about, you know, you have geographic stuff. And it's I, I think in some cases, geography is does matter. Like, for example, for whatever reason, Kansas City is a mecca for they call it the animal health corridor. And I mean, it's well, because we're right next to a bunch of farmland, but we see a lot of interesting stuff come up that's related to that and companies relocating for that purpose. And in some cases, if you're near the people that you help or want to help, I think it could be easier to make a sale, build a relationship, any of that. But then again, it's a virtual world now. It's definitely had a big impact on everything. Okay, so everyone wants to talk about competition. Here we are in 2021. And um, I think most people might feel comfortable with me saying that most original ideas are non-existent in this point. So if you're jumping in, you're either way down a niche and, you know, like to say, there's, there's riches in the niches. How do you go about looking at a company's competition? At, you know, when you're in this early stage, you know, any, any, you know, early stage startup mm -hmm. and you're saying, man, are they trying to, are they trying to fight 800 pound gorillas every day or do they have a chance here? How do you look at like total, at, at total addressable market and whether or not you could even get in the ring? Sure. Well, you mentioned, I think the key key there is the total addressable market. You know, the market needs to be very, very large to come into it. And if it's large enough, you'll find that even if you have an 800 pound gorilla in there, there are plenty of other places in which in that market in which to go to not have direct competition if the market's large enough. And so that's what you want to do is look for a market that's big, preferably they may have a lot of open white spaces, so to speak, places where people aren't innovating, people aren't directing. And another approach you can take is take, take the last big thing that was working very that was, um, you know, came out, you know, like, you know, there was a great technology that was hitting the market. And what you do is you take that and make that more effective. You, you can ride on top of the competition by taking what they're doing and making it more uh, valuable to the user, easier to access, easier to understand. So even if you have competition, you often get into cooperation where you're actually using them as a partner channel to sell your product or service. So there's almost an infinite number of iterations you can do on that. But number one, start with a large market. If you don't have a large market, you can find yourself running out of uh, space very quickly. If you have a large market, there will always be something to do somewhere. For those of you that are interested in learning more about Silicon Valley investment trends, both now and in the future, make sure you tune in to Stephen Hoffman's guest series that starts on November 10th. You'll have a weekly episode from our friend who is lovingly known as Captain Hoff and has been a former guest. He's sitting down with, uh, with a series of uh, Silicon Valley-based uh, venture capitalists, and they're going to talk all about the past and the future, and I think that that will be a fun and interesting series. Okay, so is is now the right time to invest in startups still, or has that has that has the best have the best years passed, or do you think the best years might still be in front of us? No, I think there's a we're starting a whole new startup cycle, is the way I say it. After the pandemic, the market has a whole new set of care abouts. Uh, stock market's all time high, interest rates are zero. There's plenty of money out there. 
valuations are very high right now. So as an investor, I'm, I'm cautious about that aspect, but everything else I'm very bullish on because we're just now getting into a whole new set of things in climate change and new technologies that are coming into the mainstream that uh, are going to be, I think the 1920, the 2020s are going to be uh, the, the decade of innovation and entrepreneurship because everybody's an entrepreneur now. Everybody I know is becoming an entrepreneur. Every company I know is trying to become, act like a startup, even if they're very large. So it certainly is the place to be at this point. Again, we're at the beginning of the cycle. There will be many ups and downs and there'll be consolidation later. But I think today is the best time to start a startup for sure. You know, there's so much that goes on that feels cyclical. You know, prior to the pandemic, I was, I won't, I won't quote names, but talking to people, they're like, I hate ed tech. Don't want and don't need ed tech. You talk to them three months into the pandemic. I love ed tech. I can't put <laughs> enough money into ed tech. Um, you know, as I mentioned, we'll have a, a guest series coming about the trends now and in the future. I mean, what are some of the trends that you've seen uh, that, well, either die or seem to be firing up? I know you, you just alluded to some of that, but maybe a little more specific about specific types of industries or things that everyone seems to want to throw money at. Uh, blockchain crypto comes to mind. Back in 2017, we saw a lot of ICOs and white papers and uh, mostly hysteria. And so had many investors come and look, but very few actually invest because what was real, what was not, nobody could tell. Here we are four years later, and there are now substantial applications. There's actual meaningful networks being built. There's actual money to be made. Uh, people have gotten over the hysteria. And so I think that's one of the best places to invest in and build is in the blockchain crypto because I think it's coming of age. We're coming out of the, uh, you know, the, the 1995 to 99 uh, uh, era of blockchain into real applications, people doing real things. So I see that a lot. Uh, AI, ML, I think is a good place to invest artificial intelligence, machine language. Uh, the thing you look for there is real AI, real ML. I think we're at that stage where everybody puts that on their, their product because that's the cool thing to do. And But you have to go and look at the technology to see if they're actually doing it. But it is coming into fruition also. And then the third one is climate change. I think uh, we're seeing uh, real money start to be applied to it and new technologies coming into it that it seems like we're really going to go after it. It was the 2010 was the last time investors put substantial money into the renewables and it did not go well then. Uh, and the number one concern I heard was the technology did not deliver. This time around, it seems like the technology has progressed and that's that could be a, a big game changer is that I think at this point, we, we, we have to make the technology work. And so they'll mature and grow it and turn that into something useful. So I see a lot going on there as well. It was almost exactly two years ago this weekend that we were uh, on a field trip to TechCrunch and went around and with our contingent and talked to everybody that had a booth there. And uh, you talk about machine learning and AI. And that was by the, by the time we had ended our first day, our joke was, well, my machine learning algorithm does this. And we weren't sure how many of that was, how much of that was actually real. We were like, wow. So either we are way behind and every single platform has machine learning 
and uh, or they don't. But yeah, we noticed that that was kind of a funny trend. We had a lot of fun with that, both on the podcast and amongst ourselves, you know, uh, <laughs> I mean, because if you ask me what kind of salad dressing I was going to get at dinner that night, my machine learning algorithm was certainly going to come up with the best solution. So uh, now, now with that, I mean, I think that brings up a, a reasonable uh, a reasonable discussion of, you know, as an, as an angel investor or someone that's investing in startups, how do you do any technical, technical diligence? How do you know what's under the hood? Well, I think that's the key thing uh, uh, an investor should do is have somebody in their angel network that can actually look at the code and look at the modules being built. I find in these pitches, startups stand up and they say, I built this software and the question that always goes on in my mind is, well, how many modules of that software do you need to develop before you can go to market? And how many more modules will you need to reach a, you know, a growth rate? And then how many more modules to actually get to break even? And I really hear that question asked. I think everybody assumes software, it's either done or it's not. Well, having worked in companies before, I, I can tell you software is never done. And if you don't have enough of it uh, built, uh, then you're you're going to be in trouble. And that's why so many investors use the revenue metric. How much have you sold? How many more are you selling? And trying to get the market to tell them its software is developed sufficiently enough. But I think the other side is sit down and actually look at what is developed because I've, I've done that and I've sound, I found some groups, you know, they need 15 modules to go to market and they've got two of them developed. Okay, so we're really not that close to the market. You know, your two months is really going to be two years in this case. And others, you know, it's the other way. They built 13 out of the 15 modules. The last two are simple. Okay, in two months, we may actually be going to market. And so you actually start digging in and looking at what is actually there. And the way you do that is you go interview the team. And that's why I always coach uh, uh, investors is they always, always want to sit down and study the product. I say, you know, you want to study the team. Go, go to the office where the team is, if you can, if it's one place, and go around and interview and see who is actually there, what do they actually know, and what are they actually doing, and let's see what the what this actually looks like. And then you'll start to really understand where the business is because it always gets overinflated and overhyped in the pitch. That's just the way pitches go. It's all excitement. It's all enthusiasm. But the, then the next question is, okay, intelligence, let's see what's really there, and then see if the customers are really there. How many of the customers they say they have are really forecasts or in trials or in negotiation and how many have actually put money down and it's fair game to go talk to a few customers as well what do you think about the software is it going to work for you so one of the things that i've noticed with angel stage investors is they like to travel in packs you know like they see that their friends or their colleagues or whomever their other just group members are investing mm -hmm. is that is that a good way to make an investment or is are you just sometimes are you just possibly jumping on the crazy train i think it's a good way to share the deal flow and the due diligence as we said before you know the, the other side is many of these companies will need help and if you put money in and then find you're the only one that's put money in then you, at heart you're having to own all the problems that come out of it or all the challenges that come with it if you come in with a group of people three four five ten fifteen others you have a much better shot at finding someone who's better at solving some of those problems than you are. 
And then you also have a better chance of finding someone that has better domain knowledge, asking better questions and coming up with better go to market or business strategies. And so that's why it's helpful to have it is not so much for the upfront, but for the back end, when you actually make the investment, now you're in there and you want to help them uh, overcome challenges, a bigger group often helps that situation. So prior to booking on the show, you had mentioned the possible discussion about cognitive bias. Now, cognitive bias is a systematic error in thinking that occurs when people are processing and interpreting information in the world around them and affects the decisions and judgments that, that, that they make. So what are you, uh, you clearly have some opinions and thoughts on cognitive bias and, you know, maybe investing with a group of people could be, could provide some level of cognitive bias. I mean, how to, what are your comments, questions, concerns, or what do we need to look out for in that regard? Well, I, I actually put together an e-guide on about 40 biases that are out there that I see in the startup and investing world. And what I find is that uh, there's an application to the startup funding and investing world in each and every case. Uh, for example, you know, there's the ambiguity effect. You know, basically startups are risky and they make proposals about the outcome of their deal. And the ambiguity effect, you know, says basically, you know, the tendency to avoid options for which the probability of a favorable outcome is unknown. And so one thing that investors are worried about is if they look at your deal and they don't see a path to a successful outcome, how are you ever going to make this work? They're not going to invest. So as a startup, you want to make sure that you can show a clear path to success and you've validated those steps. Yes, they buy the product. Yes, the team can work together, yes, the customer will pay the fee. Uh, you want to show that those, those proof points are there because if the investor can't figure out how you're going to get to successful con conclusion of going to market or growing in the market, then they're not going to go forward from there. And there's, there's many others that are out there as well that uh, investors can use to maybe test what they're doing. As a startup, one of the, the biggest uh, biases I find is the curse of knowledge. The startup is so close to the deal that they don't always tell you what they're actually doing. In fact, I used to do this in pitch sessions. I would actually time it to see how far into the pitch I would get before I actually figured out what they did because they uh, just assumed you knew what they did. And I found that sometimes I was eight, nine minutes into it before they actually told me what it was or I figured it out in some other way. So my coaching to, to startups is in the very beginning, in five words or less, tell us what you do. We make radiation-hardened memories. Okay, great. Because the investors have a cognitive dissonance going on until they figure out what problem you're solving, what, pro pro what opportunity you're bringing to the table, and what, uh, uh, you know, what, what the outcome is going to be here in this case. So the challenge is you're, you're really trying to explain what you're doing, and the investors have to figure that out before they can go forward to estimate the rest of your deal. Is it a reasonable go-to-market strategy? Is, is it a reasonable raise and so forth? So you have to actually articulate those things up front. Otherwise, it's not going to go anywhere. So those are just some of the biases that we see out there. Yeah, and according to the internet, and once again, I'm not going to pretend to be a, an expert on this subject, but one of the more common ones is only paying attention to information that confirms your beliefs. <laughs> so that, and that, 
yeah, that's going to be, that's going to be pretty, pretty forward. Now, uh, there's a man, I have to pull this out of my cabinet. I've read a whole book on some of this and I say, I don't know too much. The art of thinking clearly, um, which is a good one. It's got, got about a hundred different types of bias or things that we convince ourselves to do whatever it is we do. Like some of it's like the idea that there's not a free, no, really no such thing as a free lunch because when someone gives you something or does you a favor, takes you out to lunch. And, you know, honestly, I go through this all the time because we have a suite at our local venue. We have tickets for the Kansas city Royals. We take people in, out and do stuff in a very non-solicitive way, but they remember us later when there might be a time to either recommend us or whatever. And I mean, some of that's on purpose. So now, now with that, you got to make sure that you're not putting all your money down on, you know, things that are heavily biased because you think they're going to be great and you haven't done the rest of the, the background research. As I mentioned at the top of the show, there's, you know, investing in startups is risky and you need to know that going into it. Um, there's a ton of companies out there and there's a ton of people writing checks to them and there's a ton of instruments and you have things like SPACs and other stuff that are uh, for all intents and purposes, disrupting the startup scene and like the way that they get funded. So I, now I do agree with you. I think it's a great time to start a startup <laughs> because it's never, you've never had a more ways to raise capital. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm getting old hall. I turned 46 this year and, you know, when I first started doing a lot of this, there wasn't all these options and things out there. There's a lot of different avenues that you can you can use and a lot of great information, much like the show, right? So once again, today's episode of Startup Hustle was brought to you by Fullscale, helping you build a software team quickly and affordably. If you want to come, also, if you want to come join us to talk about Startup Hustle, the guests, and just other things related to our hosts, and I say hosts, I'm not the only host of the show, make sure you tune in for the weekly show hosted by Andrew Morgans, talking all about e-commerce and Amazon brand acceleration, and join Innovate, her founder, Lauren Conaway, for a weekly episode where she tackles so many subjects and topics that I am not brave enough to discuss on air. So there's so much going on out there. Now, once again with me today, we've got Hall Martin, the founder and CEO of the 10 Capital Network. Uh, I was, Hall, I was at your website before we started the show. And for those of you listening, once again, there is a ton of really good information in there. I recommend that you go check it out because um, you know, information that comes from people that are doing it, not just saying they're going to do it, uh, for me is real. Uh, I think there's a lot of people out there, uh, telling entrepreneurs how to be entrepreneurs that have never been entrepreneurs. And honestly, man, that drives me crazy. So hearing it from people that write checks and do all that stuff. I mean, that's, that's where it's at. So go check it out. Now, Paul, I like to end my episodes with what I call the founders freestyle, and you are a founder and a CEO. So what's some of the best advice that you could give founders in general or when it comes to raising capital? It's a freestyle. So you go ahead and, and mention whatever you like. And it's your, your chance to, to throw it out there. Go for it, buddy. Sure. So if you're a startup raising funding from investors, a couple of rules there. Number one, never show up to the pitch empty handed. Always have some business result that you can share with the audience or the investors. In fact, uh, the other best thing you can ever do is bring a customer input to the 
discussion. I had many people coming saying, well, I'm pre-revenue, therefore I haven't talked to any customers. Well, this, this conversation is now over. If you're not talking to customers, that product's not going to be successful. What I'd rather hear is uh, I was talking to a large company and they have an interest, they have a problem. I told them, I think I can solve my technology. They're very interested. In the next discussion, you say, we turn that discussion into a pilot. They're going to pay us $50,000 to do a test for it. And, and so even though the product is not uh, up running, revenue generating, they're doing the right things. They're involving customers up front. They're getting customer money, which shows validation. They have a problem. They'll pay money to solve it. And you're having them as part of the process for building the product. If you ever show up and say, I built this and now I'm going to go see if I can sell it, uh, that, that's the wrong mode. You should really work the other way around. I'd rather hear about your customers than your product because I know if we stay with the customer, we'll, we'll get to the market with something that works. If we just start with a product, we don't know what will happen from there. So that's just one feedback I give is always bring the customer to the discussion with investors on every, every inter interaction. You know, as far as my freestyle, I, I couldn't agree with what you said earlier more uh, when it comes to what do you do? What's the problem that you solve? I have literally been in pitches where 10, 15 minutes into it, the people listening stop it. And they're like, so what do you do again? And <laughs> you, I mean, I, I've, I've, I've seen it. I've been had it happen a bunch. And I mean, you know, my book editor is the one that beat this line into my head, but I think that it goes well with any type of pitch or any type of sales presentation. You have to lead with the need. And that's what you get into right away, you know, because you don't capture someone's attention. I mean, if someone's 10, 15 minutes into, you know, a presentation and you're sitting there going, what do you do? You're not listening at that point. You're over it. And then for people like me that, uh, open. I I am openly out of the closet as a salesperson. People, I am not afraid to admit that I'm a salesperson, and that's a really important thing to me. If I'm listening to your pitch and I get 10, 15 minutes into it, and I still don't know what the hell you're selling, I I have probably lost my faith in your ability to sell whatever it is that you sell. So, I mean, I think that has so much to do with it. And, you know, if you've listened to this show for a long time, you've heard me say that people don't buy features, they buy benefits. So what's the benefit of what you've created? What's the problem that it solves? And how is that going to get big? And if you can't spit that out in like 30 seconds, maybe a minute, you're off track. It's just that simple. I mean, I, I like to think that I could pitch any startup in like three minutes and give you what you need to know. You put that out there and then let, let, and then, and then you're, you're a receiver. You're waiting for people to hit the questions back at you and ask what they're interested in, or maybe they're not interested at all. And that's efficient. And, uh, Paul, as I get older, I have a, I have a strong appreciation for people not wasting my time and being efficient in that <laughs> regard. So I don't know, maybe that's uh, you know, maybe that's just the way it goes. Thank you again for joining me, sir. For those of you listening, go to 10capitalgroup.com. That's right. That's T-E-N, capitalgroup.com. There's a link in the show notes. Check out what they're doing. Hall, I will catch up with you down the road, buddy. Thanks so much. Enjoyed having you. Start. 
Startup Hustles brought to you by Fullscale.io, helping you build a software team quickly and affordably. Make sure you reach down and hit that subscribe button, then come find us on Instagram. See you next time. We do it.